Matthew chapter 13, verses 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Those who know me well know that I'm a bit of a treasure hunter. And some of you make fun of me for it. During my time off, I can often be found hunting for different things. I like to find stuff that people throw away. I like to find things that people pay no attention to, that they haven't realized the value in it. I like to find things. You'll find me at thrift stores. You'll find me at yard sales. You'll find me at different places. I actually have a metal detector, a low-end metal detector. I have found things on the beach. I have gold panning equipment, not lots. Somebody, I was doing counseling in my office the other day at, at, at home, and somebody walked up to this glass vial that I had and said, what is this? I said, well, it's supposed to be gold. I don't know if it is or not. But I found it panning, and it looks like gold, so in my mind, it's gold. There's something to me about finding stuff that's lost, or something that's hidden, or something that's of no value. Does anybody else like this kind of stuff? There's a few of you, right? A couple of you, yeah, that like to go to yard sales and antiques, and the rest of you going, oh, you're one of these people. Courtney says, Dad, you're going to be one of these hoarders when you grow up. And I'm trying to tell her I won't be. But here's the thing. I love to find these things. I was using a metal detector on the beach one day, and you get a lot of sounds, a lot of beeps when you're on the beach, and a lot of times you can find aluminum foil and cans and all kinds of junk. But once in a while, you'll find something really cool. I remember the first time I found something really, really cool. I was scanning the the sand, and it was kind of wet, and it had this real good solid, solid beep, and I dug down deep, and there was this massive silver ring. It was engraved in all kinds. Of, it was heavy, and it was so, I was so excited to find it. Now, listen, I don't walk by the jewelry counter at a store and go, oh, my goodness, look at these rings. But it was something cool about finding something that had been lost, something hidden in the dirt. And digging it up. And I remember going back to the guy who gave me the metal detector and showing it. He got just as excited as I did, going, wow, I've never found something like this at the beach. This is so cool. And now it sits in a box that I never look at. I think what I enjoy about it is not what you go out there and see, because when you go out there and see, you don't see anything. You just see, you know, trash or whatever. But I always go out there with the hope of what could be. I found a lot of old coins. One of the great things I enjoy doing is finding something and, and digging it up and looking. And I'll research it on my phone. I'll find out more about it. And what I end up doing is wiping a lot of the crud away off of this thing that I find before long. You see the shine or you see the value or begin to see the detail of what you found. There's something amazing about seeing the value. Not too long ago, I was in this thrift store and I walked in and I saw this old beaten up dresser and I just liked it. And I knew it was old, so I bought it for like $10. And in my research, found out it was made in the 1870s. And I stripped the thing down, and I restored it. And I'm just a hack at this stuff, but I restored it, sanded it, put the original uh, brass back on it, and the thing is gorgeous. And it sits in my room right now. Roy's in my room. And I sent a picture back to the thrift store, and they were amazed by it. I've, I, I'm bad at this, right? I've been offered two consulting jobs at two thrift stores. They're like, I'll go in there, and they'll say, man, I don't know what this is. And I'll look, and I'll go, this is this, and it's from this time frame, and this is what it's worth. And they go, oh, wow, can we hire you? Can you consult for us? Now, guys, this is just a hobby for me. This is just something I, I, I enjoy doing. But there are some people who would devote their lives to this kind of stuff. My metal detector, it was a couple hundred bucks. I actually traded a mine detector, an army mine detector for this metal detector. That's how I got it. I didn't even buy the thing. And the mine detector is what I found somewhere else, right? 
And that's how I got into metal detecting. And some of these metal detectors go for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Some people devote their lives to finding things like this. The greatest treasure I've ever found was found in the midst of my sin. The greatest treasure I have ever found was found in the midst of my sin. And as you wipe the sin away, because that's what Jesus does, you begin to see something shining in a life that you didn't think was possible. I think that's why I enjoy ministry. It's the same drive of thought in me that likes that drives me to go and find old things amongst junk or dirt or lost or hidden things, things that have been thrown away that just need to be wiped clean or restored and then seeing the value of what really is there. And I think why I love ministry is because I get to see that in something that really counts more than a silly ring. But in the lives of people. So many people live lives that are covered in junk, that are covered in sin. They live lives that have been overlooked, thrown away, lost and pushed to the side and not valued at all. But God sees something in them. And he places us in their lives to help find that and reveal that and show that to them. And so So we carry within these earthen vessels, within these jars of clay, within this outer thing which is nothing, a treasure so far more valuable than what the exterior could possibly contain. But it's inside of me and it's inside of you. And so we carry this amazing treasure that doesn't deserve to be carried in what this exterior looks like. And the more I wipe away of this exterior, the more what I carry inside can be seen. And the more of what I carry inside that can be seen, the more it leads other people to Him. I love treasure hunting. But the greatest treasure I've found now lives inside of me. I love bringing that knowledge of that treasure to people that that I come around. I think I enjoy that more than anything. And and, and it's the same thing as you come in in contact with people and you begin to point them to Christ. It's like, and it takes a time and it's a process. Not all impurities just come off. Some of these coins have to be scrubbed. Some of them have to really be pushed. You have to work hard. But those impurities in our lives, man, God is good at beginning to wipe those away. And as he wipes those away in our lives, he reveals to us what he sees, what is valuable, what's worth dying for. We're talking about all in. Are you all in? Gave the example last week of poker, saying, man, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm all in. I'm putting everything I have on the table. I am fully invested in this because I believe in what I have. We talked about devotion last week in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 61, says this, Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God. Wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments. Let me tell you, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments are critical. Because in order for you to be seen by others and God to be seen in you, we need to be moving in purity and moving in obedience and moving in love. And it takes a commitment and a devotion to God, especially in the world that we live in, to take the stances that he has called us to take to live like he wants us to live. Last week when we broke down the word devotion, we kind of came up with this. This is what devotion really means. Intensely, wholeheartedly committed. 
intensely, wholeheartedly committed. So let's reread 1 Kings 8.61 with those words. It says, let your heart therefore be intensely, wholeheartedly committed to the Lord our God. Is your heart intensely, wholeheartedly committed to the Lord your God? Where does that kind of intensity come from? It doesn't just show up overnight necessarily. It doesn't come from nowhere. What leads someone to that kind of intensity? Last week we talked about James Gordon, that missionary on the island. And what was kind of cool this past week that Courtney and Mac were in the back and they were starting Googling uh, James Gordon and found information I didn't know about it. And then Courtney came up to me after the service and said, Dad, there's a book out that he wrote. And it's called The Last Memoirs of George Gordon and Ellen Gordon. And they were the missionaries, his brother and sister-in-law, who were killed. And I ordered that book from Amazon this week. And I have not, and, and we've been reading, my parents, I've been reading through the memoirs of George and Ellen Gordon and all the trials that they went through. It's called The Last Martyrs of Eromongo. And interesting enough, James wrote this not knowing that he was going to be the last martyr. And he was writing it about his brother and his sister. And I'm, as we're reading through their trials and reading, man, I began to look at my faith going, man, I don't know what a challenge is. Now, I don't know what a trial is. They would sit in their hut while hearing the locals planning on how they were going to kill them just outside. There were war parties going back and forth. I mean, these guys, man, they had, and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, man, what happened to the passion of the church? What's happened to the passion of God's people? What's happened to my passion? Sometimes we get to the point where, man, my greatest commitment to God is getting up early on a Sunday to make it to church. And if I can do that for God, he's welcome. Think of Paul's words. He says, Since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let, you, let us run the race. And I, I think sometimes about these missionaries who, who died. What are they thinking when they look down right now at us? And are they going, man, just you're running that race. Man, good for you. Way to get up in the morning. You could have hit the snooze button, but you chose not to. Thank you for sacrificing. Man, and I go, man, like, come on, like, like, what's happened? Where's our intensity? Where's our, where's our drive? What, what's happened in this process? What was lost? Where does this intensity come from? To lead a man to go to an island right after his brother and sister-in-law were killed. Something stirs the soul that leads a person to that kind of commitment. It's only a passion for God that can do that. As you think about passion, I think passion is a word that's been cheapened in our dictionary. We... Talk about being passionate about this or passionate about that. And so I looked up passion. Looked up in Webster's to see how Webster's defines it. And under Webster's simple definition, it says a strong feeling of enthusiasm or excitement for something or about doing something. Yet under Webster's full definition... The very first thing it says is this, passion, the sufferings of Christ between the night of the Last Supper and his death. I love that that's in Webster's, and I love that that's the full definition of passion. Because when we look at passion being identified as that period of time between the Last Supper and his death on the cross, then it changes how we should define or use that word passion. When we look at that, passion isn't 
defined by a portion of time, but rather an intensity and commitment of heart. Maybe an endurance. So we must ask ourselves if that's the definition of passion. Then what was the driving force of Jesus' passion? If that's the definition of passion, those three intense days of punishment and cruelty and the endurance that drove him through that, then what is passion? Where does that come from? Because we kind of see it in the life of James Gordon as well. See, when I understand that definition of passion, then I can say what led James to go to the island after his brother died. I can go probably the same thing that kept Jesus during those three days between the Last Supper and the cross. Something existed in James that existed in Christ. And it was an intensity and it was a passion that drove him to do and go somewhere where he would be under the same kind of scrutiny, the same kind of loneliness, the same kind of abuse, and it would ultimately lead to his own death, but he would choose to go anyway. So what is this driving force that we refer to as passion? And can I really say that I'm a passionate person? When we get to the end of this. One writer defines passion this way, and I I love this. Passion is the gap between longing and attaining. Let me say that again. Passion is the gap between longing and attaining. told you the thing that keeps me going back to treasure hunting. Is not what I see, what I, but rather what I long for and the hope of attaining. Now, am I saying I'm passionate about that? No, because my metal detector has dust on it right now. But it's that gap between longing for and actually attaining. Passion is the bridge Between the two, passion keeps you on the path. Passion refuses to give up because passion has this ability to see into the future of what possibly could be beyond what currently is. It's called the passion of Christ. And it was the distance between what he longed for and what he was going to attain on that cross. It was the knowledge of what he had the power to do and who he was. And because his heart was broken for mankind. His heart saw us the way we were in our sin and in our darkness. And in that knowledge and seeing of, uh, for where we were was this longing in him to get us to where we needed to be. And he knew that in him he was the answer. He carried the answer in himself and he carried the answer through his actions and through his death on the cross. And so what drove him, what was the source of the intensity and the passion was the desire to save us, to get us from where we were to what we could be. He hadn't yet attained it, but he knew he could and he knew he would. And so he was willing to, to, to go the length, to go the extra mile, to endure the hardship and to endure all the suffering. Why? Because of, he could see into the future of what needed to happen for our own sakes. 
When I think of passion that way, all of a sudden I go, man, this is what we see in James Gordon. I'm not trying to make him out to be Christ, but man, I see in him. That same passion where he sees what happens to his brother and his sister-in-law and he still recognizes, hey, listen, this is what currently is. I'm not, I'm not denying that they have killed my brother and my sister-in-law, but man, what I hope for and what God has for them is still here. And I know, I can imagine this thought process, him thinking this, I know that I have within this earthen vessel this treasure that I carry and in order for them to get from where they are to where they need to be to what God has for them, that's what he's called me to do. That's what he's placed me on this earth to do. And so my passion bridges the gap between where they are to where they could be. And that's the driving force that drives him to get up and to go. The hope of what could be. The knowledge of what he holds within himself and the faith in a God who can do all things. So passion took him to that island. And passion took Jesus to the cross. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I love that. We have this treasure in unworthy vessels that carry around gold. So James... This jar of clay followed Jesus. And the gold has shone through. The treasure has shone through. So where does passion come from? This is just someone's thoughts on it, but I think firstly passion comes from understanding what God has done in you. I think the first ingredient to passion is a real understanding of what God has done in you. Luke 7, verse 47, Jesus says this about a woman who who honors him. He says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little Loves little. What he's saying is those who really have an accurate understanding of their sin and the, and the enormity of their sins will love deeper in a greater way. When you understand how much Christ has forgiven you, When you understand how costly it was, it will drive you to a greater love and a greater service. If we dismiss what Christ has done, not that any of us would intentionally do that, but when we look back on our lives and go, well, I've lived a pretty good life. I haven't done that much wrong. My sin doesn't look like somebody else's sin then I think it cheapens our commitment to who Christ is as if it didn't cost him as much to forgive us as it cost him to forgive somebody else. Well, I wasn't the one in jail and I didn't commit this murder or I didn't you know, sell these drugs or I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Therefore, my sins are smaller. Listen, you need to understand your sins still put Jesus on the cross. It doesn't matter how small you think your sins are. If that's where you are, you need to re-examine yourself and get right with God because it doesn't matter. My sins, just if someone was here by himself, was enough and is enough to put him on that cross. 
So Jesus says, man, for those who have been forgiven much, is, it, is he saying that they actually have sins that need more forgiveness than us? Is he really saying that their sins were worse? No, what he's actually talking about is recognition, self-recognition. When someone has sinned so much, they've actually taken time to go, man, are you sure God really can forgive me? Are you sure? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Because I'm not convinced I would forgive myself. And so he's saying that kind of recognition of self to go, man, he goes, that's what leads to commitment. It's, it, it's that understanding that, man, God would die for someone as horrible and as heinous as me. Like, why would God do that? And when you really come to grips and then understand that, yes, God has died for me and all of my sin, man, it leads to a loyalty. But if you're coming from a standpoint where I didn't really do that much, well, I have a hard time articulating what my sins were. You might not be as committed to Christ as he wants you to be. So I believe that it it comes down to an understanding of what God has done in you. Now here's what I'm not saying. That you have to be a great sinner, all right, to have done the worst things in the world, to love God and serve God. No, what I am saying is you need to have an accurate understanding of how bad even your smallest sins are. And you can't cheapen your sin in your life because it doesn't look like someone else's. Your sin and my sin put Jesus on a cross. That's what I'm saying. And so whether you are the least sinner in the world's eyes or the worst sinner, you can be passionate about Christ because you have an accurate understanding just of how bad your sin is and was, even though the world might say otherwise. And so passion begins with this understanding of what God has done in you. And secondly, an understanding of what he wants to do through you. The understanding of what he's done in you and the understanding of what he wants to do through you. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Do we understand, firstly, what God has done in us? And secondly, do we understand what he wants to do through you? What he wants to do through that jar of clay? We understand that he has called us, that he did all this, and then he empowered us and said, now you are my witnesses, and this is your mission, and this is your purpose, to go out and make disciples, and that you're not going in your own strength. In fact, you mustn't go in your own strength. Don't you dare go in your own strength. You must stay here until I empower you by the Holy Spirit. And when I empower you with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you will be my witnesses. And you will move in my power and my strength and my authority and not your own. And so this is what I have done in you. And now take this mission that I have given to you, empowered by my strength. You're not operating out of your jar. In fact, the less of your jar that is seen, the more of me is seen. The more you wipe away who you are, the more of the treasure inside of you will be revealed. And that's your goal. Less of you and more of him. And then I'm sending you out in these earthen vessels into the community and into this place. And the less people see of you, the more what's inside will shine through. And you will preach a message and how you live and how you love and how you act. It will just naturally shine through. And the more of self that gets in and the more that we start loving ourselves and going after our own things and, and being who we are and, and all of these things, the more of that, the more abrasiveness people see in us, the less of God they see. The more self-worship they see of us, the less of God they see. As we become less, he becomes more, and he becomes more visible in our lives. So when I ask you a question, do you really understand what Jesus has done for you? Have you done an inventory of all the things he's done for you? When's the last time we took time to think about that? If you're sitting here thinking, man, I'm not sure what my greatest sin is. Can I tell you, your greatest sin is what you're currently doing right now. The fact that you don't even know what it is. That somehow you feel like you're living such a righteous life 
Righteousness, Mark Patterson writes this, righteousness is not doing nothing wrong. You can do nothing wrong and still be doing nothing right. Righteousness is about doing something right. God hasn't called you to live in existence of doing nothing wrong. And he's called you to do things right, according to his will, according to his purposes. God has called us to be all in, wholly devoted to him. And that passion comes from understanding what he has done in your life and what he can do through your life. You go back to Matthew 13, 44, what we opened up with. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Would you envision this? It's treasure hidden in a field. You can envision me with a metal detector, whatever you need to envision. And, and you're going out there and so all of a sudden it starts going off and you've got this massive reading and you're not sure if it's a Coke can or you're not sure if, if, whatever, if it's gold. And, and you dig, and as you dig, you begin to see coins and all kinds of things. And the excitement builds a little bit more than a Coke can. And you start digging this thing up and looking at it. And then you realize, wait, this is awesome, man. And this field is for sale. And you cover it all up. And he says, the kingdom of God is like this. A man who finds treasure hidden in a field. And immediately he runs and he sells everything that he has. What it says is this, this man goes all in to keep what he's found. He goes and sells everything that he's got. He hasn't even dug it all up yet. He, doesn't even, he hasn't had it assessed yet. He doesn't have all the value of it. He may not know all that exists there yet, but in his heart is the knowledge of what is. He sees a glimpse of something and the potential of what could be. And it's on that, on that hope of what could be in this field that he goes all in, not having realized it yet, but knowing, man, it is there. He goes, man, I'm all in. Here's everything I've got. I'm selling it. I'm going to go and purchase this field because I'm going to be all committed to this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then his, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. When he found it, he gave all for it. And Jesus says, this is the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is, this is what a life looks like who truly finds me, and truly understands me, and truly wants me. So I've come up with my own definition of what passion is. I think passion is an empowered understanding which is continuously being fueled by faith. It's an empowered understanding being fueled by a faith. It's understanding who God is in your life, what he's done. It's understanding that how he wants to use you. It's being empowered by that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's constantly fueled by faith. What is faith? It's not what is visible. It's not what is actually seen in front of you. It's of what is hoped for and believed and determined and convinced will happen. And that's what I think passion is. That's what drove Jesus to the cross. He knew who God was. He knew who he was. He knew what God could accomplish through him. And he knew what would be attained on that cross. Why did James Gordon go? He knew what God had done in his own life. He knew what God was calling him to do and what God could do through him. And so that, empowered by faith, go, man, no, I am the bridge that God has called me. God has called me to bridge this gap, to stand in the gap between what is and what needs to be. And I, when I stand in that gap, it's not me and the power of me. It's the power of him that I carry inside of this jar of clay that's going to actually bridge the gap from what is to what could be. And then when I realize that I am that person, wow, I've got to go. 
It's not a choice anymore. It's a determination. Jesus is looking for people to stand in the gap. Jesus is looking for people to be that bridge. Ezekiel 22.30 says this, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap of behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found none. What he's talking about is not a stone wall. He's talking about a spiritual wall. I'm looking for a people or a person or an individual who will understand what I have done in their lives and who will understand what I want to do through their lives. I'm looking for that person who will now go and stand between those who are between God and his kingdom and the unrighteousness and those who are lost. I am looking for that person to bridge and to carry in their jar of clay a treasure that knows no limits. Let that not be said of us, that he looked and he found none. Paul, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20-21, he's talking to Timothy here and he says this. He says, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. What Paul is encouraging Timothy is to be a vessel that is useful and for special purpose. Barclay, when it comes to this passage of Scripture, says, listen, actually what Paul is describing here is a picture of church. He said, within a church, you have gold and you have silver and you have wood and clay. He likens it to the parable Jesus told where he says, the tares and the wheat, they grow together. He says, in church, because we're still in the world, and this is still made up of humans. In church, there are going to be those who have noble uses and there are going to be those who are going to give the wrong message in what they say and how they live and what they do. He says, they'll be there together. He says, be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you do because they will be there. And God will separate them at the end. The wheat... And the tares, they, they grow together. And the beginning stages, they look the same. What Paul says to Timothy, make sure that you are a vessel that's set aside for noble uses, to be used by God. I want to say the same thing to you. What existed in church back then exists in church today. In church, there will be those who are given the wrong message, who are doing the wrong things, who are living the wrong way. Be careful of who you listen to. Be careful of how you live. What he says to him is those who cleanse themselves from the latter those who cleanse themselves from their sinful ways, those who, 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 who go after God's commandments, who wholeheartedly commit to him and look at their lives and do their best to jettison those sins, to correct themselves, to bring them to God, to get forgiveness and to walk in his ways. Not that you have to live a sinless life, but you need to be striving to live a sinless life. Striving to please God. He says, set yourself aside for God, 
And don't settle for less than God's highest and his best for you. I get excited when I look at people in a church like this. I think I get the same excitement that I, it's actually, I shouldn't say it's the same, it's much more excitement that, that I do when I go treasure hunting or whatever. All right? That's just stuff. That only, it won't go anywhere with me. It'll go to Courtney when she gets married. She'll appreciate that. But when I see you guys, I guess I feel like I see sometimes the enemy kind of creeping in and, 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 and throwing dirt back on you and trying to cover up the shining and the treasure that God has in you. I feel like I see Satan, and this is not obviously all of you, this is maybe a few or whatever, but I just feel like God's trying to, I mean, the enemy's trying to marginalize you and convince you that, that, that he can't use you. Guys, we need to understand that we are nothing more than jars of clay. We're just earthen vessels. But what we carry on the inside is amazing. And a life yielded to God will see amazing things happen. You don't want to get to the end of your life. This is a fear of mine that that, that I'll stand before God and God might look at me and say, Selwyn, if you had only trusted me more, Yes, you did this or you did that or whatever I may have done, but go, this is what I had for you. This is where you could have walked if you had trusted. Are you living the life that God has called you to live? Can you say that passion drives you? A passion for Christ. Does that mean that you have to go to an island in some far-off place and be a martyr? No. But to quote Mark Batterson again, he says, As a Christian, you cannot go to church because you are the church. I think this is what God wants to say to you this morning. You are the church. Your workplace is your mission field. Your workplace is your mission field. Your job is your sermon and how you do it and how you respond to people and how you live. That's your sermon. And your colleagues, they're your congregation. God has brought them there to hear from Him. The last thing you want me doing is getting up here and giving you someone's best shot at a sermon. Right? You don't want me coming up here and saying, this is what I have to say this morning. What you want is me getting up here and saying, this is what I believe God is saying through me to you this morning. That's God's expectation for you in your workplace in the communities, to passionately stand in the gap between those who are not saved and him, to be the bridge, to understand the sermon, and to understand the sermon that you're preaching, even when things get hard, and even when you get hard-pressed, even when you get persecuted, even when you get struck down. And so I want to close with this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It goes on. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down. But we're not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes 
not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen, what is what is what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we live by faith and not by sight. I think that defines the days of the Last Supper to the crucifixion of Christ. I'm perplexed. I'm pushed down, but I'm not destroyed. This light and momentary trouble achieves far more eternally. And so I will push forward. I think those words define James Gordon. To have these missionaries that honestly can bring me to tears when I read their stories about all that they went through and all that they go through. I'm pushed down, but I'm not destroyed. Because these light and momentary troubles will soon be gone. Because I fix my eyes not on what is here and what I currently see, but what is unseen and what God can do through my efforts and through my heart. The gospel costs nothing. You can't earn it or buy it. It can only be received as a free gift compliments of God's grace. It doesn't cost anything, but it demands everything. Would you stand to your feet this morning? If our prayer team members would come to the front. If you don't hold out on God, He won't hold out on you. Man, as I've said this time and time again, I don't want to play church. I don't want to do this on a Sunday. I want us to live this. What you have inside of you is treasure. trying to shine through and God is calling you and he's looking for those who will stand in the gap and be that bridge who will passionately love him not through the good times through the tough times what he's asking you is will you be that person Can he count on you? And if you dare to say yes, you can rest assured that he will empower you and he will go before you and he will strengthen you and it will be by his power that amazing things will happen. I'm just going to pray and then we're just going to turn the service over to the Lord and just allow him to speak to your heart. If you want to respond to him at the front, you can. If you want to respond to him where you are, Just respond to him. Lord Jesus, we come before you. Father, first and foremost, I want to thank you for what you've done in my life. God, I ask that you would forgive me for the ways in which I've cheapened it. The way I've dismissed some of my own sins is not a big deal. I recognize that my sin put you on that cross I recognize that it was my sin in the forefront of your mind that drove you from the last supper to the crucifixion it was my sin that drove you to endure such pain and such beatings and drove you to endure death on a cross and I thank you God for my life which has been changed and transformed by your power. This morning, we recognize, God, that not only did you just did you do that for us, but Lord, you have empowered us. That you have installed and deposited inside of us these unworthy vessels, treasure, 
a treasure that this world desperately needs and you have placed it within our lives. And you've sent and are sending us out into every corner of this world. And as we go out, God, that treasure of you goes with us. God, I pray that you would help us to become less. That more of you would be seen in our lives, Lord. God, would you help us to stay the course, Lord Jesus. To stay focused, though we may be hard-pressed, though we may be persecuted, that we may be struck down, God, to keep our focus on what is unseen and what we hope for and what we long for, Lord God, and what you can do. To take our minds off of what may be negative right now, Lord God. God, would you light a fire in the souls of your people, Lord God, this morning? Would you put an, an unstoppable drive in their spirits, an unstoppable determination, Lord Jesus, to, to remain pure, to become less, and to go wherever you call them to go? God, those who are, who are being sidelined by what the enemy is telling them, Lord God, God, we rebuke and bind the enemy in the name of Jesus. God, and I pray, Lord God, that you would free them from the chains of what the enemy is telling them and help them to understand it's not their own power, God, but what you can do if they will simply show up, if they will simply yield, Lord God. And God, would you help us to be the church, to be the individuals that are standing in the gap in this place, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families. That when we walk into a place, what is encountered is you and your power and your love and your message and your hope. Would you be glorified in our lives and in this church in Jesus' name? Amen. If you have needs for prayer for anything, if you're sick or hurting, these altars are open. We want to be able to pray for you. Otherwise, would you respond to God this morning?